How's it going, everybody? It is, we're going to conservatively say 10.30 in, in the evening on Thursday, August the 8th, 2019, and it's time for the 44th trip down the homeward path. This is the show by me. My name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, and 42-plus-hour-a-week factory worker that somehow, some way, we find a time to try to make at least semi-competitive magic work i love the game i love the the lore and i love getting to play with a with other people so this is the i'm trying to be the voice for other people like myself so while we were away this past week we had the the biggest thing i've paid attention to i have not been keeping up on the the grand scale other than stuff like commander spoilers if I'm being honest, uh, I've been more interested in working with the people I'm trying to teach how to play magic at work. And one of them played his first tournament this weekend. I did a tournament report on that on riding in cars with cars this week, riding in cars with cards. My English is broken. I'm so sorry, everyone. Um, but we, we had a good time playing uh, Tim's first tournament. It was a it was his first foray into tournament magic, and of course we had to play modern because that's our lot in life these days. Um, but, you know, while it wasn't necessarily the format we wanted to go into, we, uh, we had a good time, and the results were a little surprising. So if you want to check the tournament report out, it's on the YouTube channel, Homeward Path Gaming. Uh, just... Check it out, Riding in Cars with Cards, episode 9, I believe it's the most recent one, anyway. And, you know, I don't want to dive too far into that, because I want to spend most of my time on our main topic this week. And speaking of spending a lot of time on something, you should go check out our sponsor at inkgaming.com. Spend a lot of time there, pick out designs you like. Find something that really suits your customized playing space needs, and then use our promo code CCMTG10 at checkout. Get 10% off your order. Just, you know, little extra bump to the quality of the product that they make. And while you're at it, head over to constructedcriticism.com and check out the fantastic content on the network that gives me a place to, you know, kind of shout my voice out into the void that is the magic player populace a lot of the time. Uh I really don't know what I'd be doing if it weren't for Spencer and everybody else there. Like, so if you want to, if you want to support the show in a, in a meaningful way, check out the content on the network. Or if you want to support the show direct directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash homeworkpathmtg. This show's always going to be free, but if you feel like what you are getting from me is worth helping me continue to make it, I will make sure it goes to good. I will make sure whatever is donated goes to good use. So all of that out of the way, let's, let's dive in this week because it was, I, I wasn't, honestly, I was not sure what I was going to do this week. I just kind of waffled over a couple of things. I was, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make a focus on more evergreen content, things of that nature. And then the idea just kind of, smack me in the back of the head uh because i hear it locally a fair amount because we've got some local players who don't like it 
and then I hear it on, I, I see it on Twitter, Facebook groups, all of that. Somehow, in the year 2019, in an age where magic is available free to play on a digital platform, it's available super cheap to play on a different digital platform with you know, a wider format base and the ability to actually trade cards and literal access to thousands of pieces of content per week, streamers, everything you could possibly ask for as a Magic player to consume content on your favorite game. Somehow, someway, we still have people complaining about net decking. Like, I'm, I'm honest, I'm astonished it's even still a term. I was not aware that we were still doing this. So I've been one of these people before. I used to want to do everything in my power to avoid playing something that somebody else was playing. And then I realized that, you know, I'm not actually as good at deck building as I think I am. Just because a card seems good, like if nobody's playing something, there's some reason. Sometimes it's just because it's too hard to make it work. And as I've gotten older, as I've gotten wiser, as I've gotten less and less time to myself to devote to testing, to like iron out kinks and deck lists, I just don't have time to be that exhausted anymore, <laughs> quite frankly. So from a personal perspective, like... I've, I've made the switch. I've gone from one of these like casual magic elitists. That's like, you know, if you got your deck off the internet, you're worse than me because you didn't build your own deck. I've gone from that. I grew up from that. I matured from that. And now I'm probably one of the bigger proponents of utilizing the resources that are available to you because that's really what you're doing, right? With all this content out there, you'd be silly not to use some of it. So rather than go like, you know, go into personal attacks and pull up names and go, you know, completely and utterly like off the rails with this, let's just talk about it for what it is. We're going to start by defining it, right? Net decking is the idea of instead of sitting down, looking at your own cards that are in front of your face and saying, hey, let's see what I can build out of these. It's the idea of looking at tournament results, looking at deck lists, and deciding based on the information that you were getting from the internet. You know, it's it's using the information of the internet at, at your disposal to make a decision about what deck you want to play. And then according to that, utilizing that information to purchase singles, get the cards you need in order to play this deck. So there's pros and cons to anything in life and in nearly anything in magic. And strictly speaking, there's pros and cons to net decking. So I thought we'd break some of them down. The first idea, the first pro is it helps you identify good deck ideas. Because if a deck is doing well, that generally speaking means it's pretty good. Like at the very least, it's not awful. And a lot of the time, not awful is the best you can ask for. Or a lot of the time, not awful gives you a flexible framework to work within. And then you can kind of bounce around and try some other stuff out as you go. 
right? There's, there's tons of different ways to build decks. But one of the safest, most reasonable places to start with is just pulling up the most recent string of tournaments or looking at the 5-0 deck list dump. You can look there and find obscure stuff. You can look at the MPL lists and find obscure stuff that's just out there. But if it's doing well, it's doing well. Uh, a really good example was the Andrew Cunio Wizards deck from the MPL when uh, War of the Spark released. The mono 2-mana 1-3 deck is the best way I can describe it. Because that's all it is. It's a deck full of 2-mana 1-3s. Cards like Augur of Bolas, Burning Prophet, Dread Horde Arcanist. You just have all these 2-mana 1-3s, and then you have Adelie's the Cinderwind to kind of glue it all together. And then a pile of cantrips and burn. And counter magic. In Kunio's case, he was playing Wizards Lightning. Well, even though it was a, a an open deck list as part of the MPL Pro Series, more than one occasion I've seen pro streamers come across the deck and have no idea what was happening. They assumed it was the Phoenix deck, played accordingly, and got their teeth kicked in. So, like, you don't have to necessarily only get tier one decks all the time when you net deck you can net deck and get weird stuff you can find obscure stuff without having to pigeonhole yourself into only doing it myself i have to do it the hardest way possible the second pro it helps you build better decks because if you can see how people a lot better at magic than you build decks you can start to understand some of the core concepts like for the longest time, I was one of those play less lands than everybody else because I wanted to play more spells. And then I realized that I was playing less spells because I wasn't drawing lands. So one of, the one of the big things I wanted to make sure of when I came back to the game after my break is I didn't want to cut lands from decks before I played them. You know, that was something I wanted to make a point of. I wanted to make sure I didn't cut lands from decks before I played them. So, you know, it's helped me identify kind of good starting point numbers on lands when I'm building a deck. If I've got a really, really low curve aggro deck or a medium curve aggro tempo deck that has a lot of card selection, 20 is kind of like the, the low end baseline. And then we add from there usually. Well, then like mid-range decks, I start with 24. And then if I'm playing more than like three, five drops, I'll add the 25th. Unless I'm playing a lot of card selection and then I'll stick with 24. You know, if I'm playing control, I start at 26 and then subtract or add based on the, based on the exact configuration. You know, there's, there's not hard, fast rules, but like you can learn so much from playing with decks that people better than you have built. And I know that sounds condescending to come down on people. It's like, hey, listen to people who are better than you. Find those people. Seek them out. Talk to them. If I'm any indication, like, people on the internet are not all, all horrible people. I hope. Like, talk to people. Ask them why they did stuff. They will give you reasons. Just 
I, 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 the, there's a streamer that I, I periodically will watch, and it's one of the things I like to bring up. Don't suggest a card unless you can explain why it should be in there. And why it should be in there should have nothing to do with the actual text on the card, but like what the card is trying to accomplish in a deck. But regardless, helping make better decks is a really big advantage of net decking. It's certainly helped me. Because when I do decide to get my brewer's cap on, I've got a much better foundation to build off of. The next pro is it helps you better maintain your budget by not getting sucked into trap concepts. I've built a lot of bad decks over the years, folks. Like a lot, a lot. I tried to build a deck that played Barbed Shocker and Fire Whip once upon a time as a mill strategy to dump my opponent's hand and then make them draw a new one. Let that sink in for a minute. That was how that that was the lengths I was going to in order to avoid net decking. Barb Shocker Fire Whip. Ping you, discard your hand, draw that many cards. That was my win condition. I wanted to mill you out by making you discard your hand and draw a bunch of cards. A bunch of times. However awful that sounds to you, believe me, it was a lot worse in practice. That was a trap concept because I saw two cards that I thought worked well together and I was like, I'm building around it. I'm not doing something like that again. Because it helps you main, because I, I dumped money into that deck. Not a lot. Like I was in high school. I wasn't spending a lot of money on anything. I didn't have a job. I was, you know, I was busier then than I am now. That deck was horrible. But even like going forward, when I was, when I was living up north, there were, there was a, a period in time in which I always kind of seemed to be a couple of weeks behind the metagame. I kept just inching my way into a deck only for it to fall out of popularity. And that was because I was looking at something that did well and then trying to innovate on it to change it so that it was mine. It was mine. It was my own, my precious, my precious. It was mine. I had to do it. It was mine. And then I would play it and it would be horrible and I would be out every bit of capital I'd use to get that deck. And then I'd have to flip it for a loss in order to get into a new one. And that was, you know, the, the constant churning cycle of that is a big part of what eventually led to my burnout, which caused me to take the break that I did. I just like, I never, I, I at bare bet, like absolute best case scenario, I was treading water. And a lot of the time I was just actively hemorrhaging money and I wasn't making a lot of it. So since I've come back to playing, I've made a, a conscious decision to not get suckered in by playing a bunch of bad cards if I can help it. Like if the deck doesn't have a basis that I can play off of, I'm not building it. And Arena's helped with that quite a bit because it's allowed me to test out standard concepts without actually sinking money into them. So, uh, you know, a deck like the Blue Black Terramander deck seems kind of weird on the surface, but I'd tested it online before I ever bought the cards. And it's been surprisingly good. 
The next pro, it makes brewing more effective down the line when you finally get around to doing it. Real good example. Is it Phoenix post-war the spark standard? Like, we took, a li- we took an old list, changed like five cards, and the deck felt broken for a month. Even better, even better analogy. The deck that I built with Nick when I first started back. He said, I want to be able to beat control, but I want to be kind of aggressive. You know, he was losing a lot to blue-black control. This was, uh, Cal- it was right after Kaladesh had released. I'd spent the summer playing mostly commander and trying to build the collection back up. So I had like basically zero idea what standard looked like. And he was playing red, green, energy, aggro. And the more I looked at these cards, the more I looked at some stuff that I was like, well, why don't we like there's here, you know, and I just started naming some cards. We started putting stuff together. We started linking, you know, connecting some dots. And eventually we arrived at this shell that was like part for lack of a better term, John Agro with Grim Flayer, Scrap Heap Scrounger, uh, Voltaic Brawler, Unlicensed Disintegration, like, you know, you had draws that just felt nutty. But then we were playing a little package to help turn on Delirium of... Uh, Grapple with the past and vessel of nascency, which was pretty commonplace at the time in the green-black delirium decks. But the reason we were playing Scrap Heap Scrounger wasn't just for its value as just a regular aggressive threat that keeps recurring itself back. Because with all this graveyard selection, we were also playing two copies of Tormenting Voice and Prized Amalgam. Prized Amalgam to come back out of the graveyard alongside your scrap heap scrounger at the end of your opponent's turn, or, you know, your opponent says move to end phase, you say response, reanimate scrap heap during the end phase, prized amalgam comes back. And then you get to add six power to your attacking force. Right? That was was the idea that I I floated to him, and then once we started in on looking at black cards, we just kind of never stopped. And the deck that we ended up building took Nick to, you know, four or five straight FNM dominant showings before he put it down just to try something else. And then later on, we eventually revisited the concept of a green-black based mid-range deck that played out of its graveyard during the copycat format. And I just got frustrated one day and I was like, let's just build a mid-range deck. And he's like, okay. So we laid out the template for Abzan Delirium, and I can't, for the life of me, I can't remember what we were playing white for. Honest to gosh, I can't remember. But we laid, you know, we sketched the framework out, the curve, the, the, the threats at every point on the curve, the things we were interested in, why we were doing Delirium versus doing something else, you know. Everything was meticulously calculated. And that deck also went on like a three or four month or, you know, three or four consecutive week run before it, it never really got hated out of his format. He just wanted to play something different. 
So I would never have built either one of those decks if I hadn't been comfortable with the idea of using the internet as a resource anyway, because I got the idea of Scrap Heap Scrounger Prized Amalgam from another deck, from a Frank Lepore creation that was playing like Emerge Creatures. It was like Elder Deep Fiend alongside Haunted Dead and Prized Amalgam in this like weird blue-black kind of almost tempo control. But the thing that really stood out to me from that deck was the Haunted Dead Prized Amalgam interaction. And then we just, instead of playing Haunted Dead, we played Scrap Heap Scrounger as a better early game attacker. It was the only difference. And then, you know, we, we translated a package from one deck into another and then kind of married little elements of other decks all together into one. Well, then we went around to the Green Black, the green black Midrange deck and this was... Essentially, green black delirium post emerical. So, like, and even after his initial run of success, uh, there was a little break, and then he picked it back up. We made a couple of adjustments to it, and it was still just as dominant there for a while. So, the idea that that being Someone who uses the internet as a resource to determine the cards you want to play makes you worse at magic, makes you bad, makes you like you never learn anything. You took the easy way out. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because I've learned far more from using the internet as a resource than I ever have in trying to rough it and go it alone and show everybody how good I was. And that brings us to the cons of net decking of which I can really only think of one. Someone on the internet or at your local game store might call you out for being unoriginal. And you know what you do? Gauge the, the severity of their, uh, their reaction to whatever it is you're doing that caused it. If they're fairly calm about it or talking about it in a joking manner, sit down, have a discussion with them. Offer to help them... Uh, tinker tune their deck. I, I can't tell you how many times I've done that. I showed up with a net deck. Somebody's like, oh, you're playing that crap. I'm like, well, what are you playing? That happened uh, one of my trips to FNM in, in Murray, Kentucky, where Nick used to live. And I'd, I'd, I went up and, you know, had several people like, oh, you're playing copycat. I was like, yeah, I know. But it's really good and I'm going to play it. <laughs> Another guy, you know, Kind of derided me a little bit, and I was like, what, what are you playing? He was like, well, I'm trying to do this thing with uh, Reckless Fireweaver and uh, a Flare Drone and, like, a bunch of artifacts. I'm like, that's actually pretty cool. Do you, do you mind if I help you out? Like, try to sketch it out, see what, we can, see what we can do better. And by the end of that session, he understood, like, why I was making changes, why I was adding a couple of lands, why I was suggesting some card choices, like... We sat down and we hammered out a deck together. Be understanding. Unless the person who's who's starting the situation is not. If you're being yelled at, remove yourself from the situation. But, I mean, that's the biggest con of, of net decking, if I'm being perfectly honest. Is there's there's a little bit of social backlash from time to time. Yeah, sometimes you can end up kind of too set in your ways. You know what kind of decks you like to look for. Those, you know, 
that's something I've been grappling with over the last little while. But really, the 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 social backlash from I, I I hesitate to go use any descriptive terms, but like the social backlash from players sometimes can be a little frustrating. That's the biggest con to net decking. So what's the net effect of pros versus cons? Um, you get to identify good deck ideas. You get to build better decks. You get to help maintain your budget by not wasting money on trap concepts. You get to be better at brewing decks down the line versus somebody tells you you're unoriginal. What's the net effect here? Just do it. A fun a fun fact that I've had to I've had to break to more than one player on more than one occasion. There's no such thing as a deck that nobody else has ever built. Somewhere hiding in the depths of the internet, that deck exists. Somebody else has thought of it. So if you've got an idea, if you if you if you've got a brew, you've got this wild, crazy, mad scientist idea, look it up. Somebody else may have been working on it. That's another resource you can use. Like you don't have to be so headstrong and stubborn. That, you know, you have to do it yourself. The only thing you're doing is making it harder on yourself. Magic is hard enough as it is. The fail rate of the average brew deck is like 80%. I'm being slightly hyperbolic, but I'm pretty sure my failure rate with brews is somewhere around 85%. Like, when I build something out of the blue... Just from scratch, look at a bunch of cards. I'm like, oh, this works together and just start laying stuff out. 85% of them I end up just putting back in the box because I know they're not going to work. The mana curve doesn't work out right. The, the number of cards I'm trying to play at the top end is too many. The number of cards I'm trying to play down low is too many and I don't have enough power at the top if I'm trying to play kind of a mid-rangey thing. I'm trying to play a control deck without any kind of real feasible way to win the game. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've done that since I started again. And rather than shake my fist, just find a deck I can build. Because, again, magic is hard enough. We don't need to keep making it harder on ourselves. So... That's going to wrap it up for this week, everybody. Thanks for, for checking in. Uh, if you want to check the show, if you want to you know, interact with the show, uh, you can find me in a lot of different places. You can find me on Twitter at HomeworkPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. Uh, we have a Facebook group for the show. It's called Homeward Pathfinders. There's, generally speaking, there's a lot of memes and a little bit of... Uh, you know, there's there's some conversation, some deck building from time to time. So it's it's a good time. It's fun. Uh, if you're a patron, you also gain access to the patron Discord, which features, you know, not a whole lot right now, admittedly, but uh, you know, more more people means more conversation. That's not a bad thing. So 
And then uh, there's also the the business Facebook page, Homeward Path. It's the actual podcast page that I post the episodes and stuff up on. Uh, if you are a fan of the show, please go give that a, a, a review. I want to hear what you like. I want to hear what you don't like. Like, talk to me. Help me make the show better. And at the end of every episode, I love to do my favorite things, my favorite segment every week. Because I, I'm a father. I love to laugh. And my favorite kind of comedy is puns. So hashtag MTG dad jokes just made way too much sense. Four starters. Did I get this one in last time? Yeah, I did. Okay. For starters, we have at Revelin's Light on Twitter. It's Revelin's Light Alters. Said, I cannot, exp- I cannot fully express the true, and in parentheses, it says undying love I have for this card. And it's a just an absolutely gorgeous altar, uh, a border extension on living death. I love it. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, with an eBay link. So, you know, check out Revelin's Light on eBay. The, the altars look just positively sick. Uh, next one is at Grubfellow or Dean of Iteration. It says green eggs and ham. Anyone? Anyone? I'll show myself out. And the picture at the bottom is Atla Palani Nest Tender from uh, Commander 2019, who, if you don't know, is essentially the egg tribal commander. Uh, the main line of text on the card is whenever an egg you control dies, reveal cards from the top of your library. Until you reveal a creature, put that creature onto the battlefield and the rest on the bottom in a random order. And then the other card pictured is Ilharg the Razebor. Because... And, you know, I'm here for this because I love me some more pigs huddled in their masses. Um, sorry. Song reference just jumped right out of my mouth. Um, love it. Next up, from Architect.com. Said, you know, at this point, people are just egging each other on. And it's uh, deck tax for... Atlas most excellent adventure or execute. <laughs> and Brian Canada, a cure for the common game, says, I think I'll scramble mine. <laughs> Appreciate you, Brian. I never would have found it without yours. And then last but not least, we have one from earlier today. Brian Canada says, Thank you at Mr. Orange, Evan Irwin. I, too, am an old guy magic player, and you have taught me today the definition of thought. That Hogok over there. <laughs> and I tagged this one specifically because I wanted to read that one out loud for everybody to enjoy, because I love it. <laughs> anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy bringing it to you. Uh, next week... I, I, I promised one of the listeners 
that our Riding in Cars episode would be on uh, Blue Black Terramander, the update. So next week, Homeward Path more than likely will be about my deck tuning process. The idea of like where I, you know, what I do when I, you know, how I choose a deck, then, you know, what the, what the criteria are for me changing cards, what kind, you know, how I decide the cards I want, that kind of thing. So, uh, again, I hope you come back. I hope you enjoy it. And if you've got better ideas for episodes down the line, you got decks you want seen on writing in cars, hit me up. Talk to me. I love talking to people. I don't know if you've noticed. So take it easy and I'll catch you next week.